Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony. And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. Oh, God, Ant, here we are again. It is ever so. And I'm going to ask you a question and see if you can get it right two weeks in a <laughs> row. I know I'm asking for the moon and the stars here, but... Is there anything new and exciting in your world this week? Interestingly, what's new and exciting has to do with the moon and the stars. Oh, for crying out loud. Are we going to do property rights on the moon again? Is that the deal? Almost. We're going to do property rights on an asteroid. We talk a lot here about how people misunderstand the nature of money. The misunderstanding often leads people to incorrect conclusions about all sorts of things like the minimum wage, prices, profits, and income inequality. But here, people are applying the same misunderstanding to an asteroid named 16 Psyche. 16 Psyche, roughly the size of Massachusetts, hangs out between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. Most asteroids are made of ice and rock, but 16 Psyche is mostly iron and nickel. Astronomers, not economists, mind you, at Arizona State University estimate that the metal asteroid is worth 10 quintillion dollars. Hang on a minute. Now, I'm no economist, but... 10 quintillion. That's an unbelievably huge number. And this is coming from someone who spends a lot of time looking at the federal debt. Let me try to put this in perspective. If you were to stack $1 bills, not lay them end to end, but stack them, 10 quintillion dollars would form a stack about one-tenth of a light year high. <laughs> oh, for crying out loud. For crying out loud. Now, for, from my view over here as a non-economist, I think I'm willing to say if the asteroid is worth 10 quintillion dollars, it's worth no dollars. The number is so large. If you received $1 every second since the Big Bang, do you know how long it would take you to accumulate 10 quintillion dollars? Oh, I'm guessing much longer than right now. You wouldn't ever accumulate 10 quintillion dollars because the universe won't exist for that long. <laughs> One dollar a second since the Big Bang. The universe doesn't last long enough for you to get 10 quintillion dollars. It turns out the 10 quintillion figure is incorrect. Suppose it were possible to access all that metal at a cost comparable to what's required to form metal in the way we normally do it the tremendous increase in the quantity of metal would cause the price of metal to fall. It would fall so far that you wouldn't get close to 10 quintillion dollars. This error of ignoring the effect on prices is the exact same error people make when they say things like we should tax billionaires 90% of their wealth to balance the budget. Bezos, for example, is worth $180 billion, but that's mostly tied up in Amazon stock. To tax that $180 billion, Bezos would have to sell his stock. Doing so would tank the price of Amazon stock, and the government would end up collecting a lot less than $180 billion. And as usual, here in Tucson at the University of Arizona, I'm looking to our friends over there at ASU in Phoenix, and I'm thinking, come on, guys, you could do better than this. They wouldn't consider asking an economist's opinion about the asteroid. Why they're asking astronomers what the thing is worth is beyond my comprehension. I'm going to work away from this line of reasoning because every time I talk to you about something in outer space, I get aggravated. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the upcoming election. And for those of you oh, out there- Oh, that's not going to aggravate you? It makes me happy all over. This is high time for political scientists like me. 
as we record this, election day is tomorrow. Yeah. So keep that in mind with whatever we say. We have not seen the results in any way, shape, or form yet. But it, I've got a headline for you. 55% of Americans believe 2020 election day will be the most stressful day of their lives. Why? Yeah, that's right. Why? What a bunch of morons. Come on. This pales in comparison to the things that will be important to you in your life. Right off the bat, Ant, but I have three children, and the days they were born, those were pretty stressful days. Yeah. Election day kind of pales in comparison to, you know, the birth of a child and all the things that can go wrong there. Even more so when you realize that no matter which one of these guys wins, the reality isn't going to change. Our lives are not going to be markedly different four years from now than they are now, regardless of who wins this election. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you hear the Trump followers are really down a rabbit hole at this point. They just don't know what to say about anything. And they're saying these crazy things like Donald Trump has fixed the economy. How on earth does anybody say that when you can look out the window? And then they're pulling all kinds of shifty nonsense. They're comparing this year's Q3 to this year's Q2. Well, you got to compare this year's Q3 to last year's Q3. That's the appropriate metric, right? This year's quarter two was so bad, there was no place to go but up. Yeah, and Donald Trump declares on his Twitter feed that it's a 33% increase. And his followers buy this. That's the hard part, right? I can't get my hands around how it is that people don't approach him with even an ounce of skepticism. I can't imagine that he believes any of this. He's speaking to a crowd that he thinks believes what he's going to say. And he's not wrong. Right. They, yeah, automati yeah. they automatically believe what he says. And it's never as bad, I think, as when we look at groups of people in terms of occupation who have really been harmed by the Trump presidency, and typically because of the tariffs that put them out of work and what have you. But that's exactly the group that is strongest behind him. I don't know what to say to that. That's just crazy. We're picking on Trump. Politicians of both stripes do this. They do it all the time. They jump out in front of the parade and say, look at what I did. The economy was going to do what the economy was going to do. It doesn't matter what Trump did or didn't do or what Biden will or won't do. I don't want to talk about everybody in both parties and this kind of thing. I want to talk about Trump because he says it. The people believe it. He's the story of the day. And I don't know how people can just get behind him on this sort of thing without ever looking at something with a critical eye. That's where it gets really weird for me. Now, tomorrow's going to be interesting, and I suspect the two weeks after tomorrow are going to be equally interesting. This, of course, brings us to the foolishness of the week, which is typically kind of lighthearted and funny. But today, not so much. The foolishness of the week is that voters are fearing what the quote is, a chaotic election day. But if you dig into it a little more, what they're really fearing is violence because of an election, and that we could end up having violence as a byproduct of an election in 2020 is asinine. Yep. If it was ever going to happen, it should have happened in 1800, and it didn't. It did not. For those of you out there who don't know about the election of 1800, go dig up a Wikipedia page on that one. It was astonishingly horrible. The earlier story indicates that 55% of us think it's going to be the most stressful day of their lives. And then this further element would have us wonder if perhaps it's going to be violent. Perhaps there'll be blood in the streets. It's almost as if we live in Colombia, some South American banana republic. We don't, but it sure is shaping up that way. Well, this is the sort of thing that happens when people repeat 
election after election, this is the most important election in the history of the United States. Well, look, it isn't. I'm sorry. You hardly know what to say about this. If you keep politicizing everything, then sooner or later, you have to realize that politics gets bloody. Because when everything is within the purview of a president and a Congress, the losers aren't going to let that one go. We were not meant to have a country in which every single thing was going to be politicized. And we'll see what happens tomorrow. I doubt that there's going to be blood in the streets. I doubt that it will end up being the most stressful day of anybody's life. Well, maybe except for a couple of people at the top of the ticket. But here we are, and I think it's time to reflect on what we expect from politics. Because the more you expect from it, the more violence there will be. And it's just that simple. To support this wonderful podcast, please meander over to patreon.com slash wordsandnumbers, where, for far less than $10 quintillion, you can help us provide an example of how to talk rationally and civilly about economics and government. This week is part two of a two-part conversation with Clark Neely on publicly provided and privately provided goods, specifically Clark's recent journey to Disney World on Amtrak. Clark is Vice President of Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. His areas of interest include constitutional law over criminalization, civil forfeiture, police accountability, and gun rights. Clark is author of Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. I was enjoying your posts from your trip to Disney World where you were alternately complaining about the service on Amtrak and praising the service at Disney World. That, and I understand you've moved your kids from public to private school. We thought that this would be a good opportunity to talk about the experience one gets from publicly provided goods versus privately provided goods. Well, I'll take a quick swipe at the post office. It's another one of these good news, bad news situations. The U.S. post office has actually facilitated a relationship between my family and a family that we've never met, but we're text friends. And the way we became text friends is that this other family lives on 20th Place and we live on 20th Street. And what this means is that about half the time one of us gets a package, it goes to the other address. Because whoever it is that delivers our mail is still unable to distinguish between 20th Place and 20th Street. And so we've actually developed this entire virtual relationship with this family that we've never met as we exchange texts to arrange to (laughs) return packages for each other. Sometimes they bring ours to us and sometimes we go and get it. Sometimes it's the other way around. So in some sense, the incompetence of the U.S. Postal Service, it's almost like when you sink one of these tankers, you know, in the ocean, you create an artificial (laughs) coral reef. The incompetence of the Postal Service has helped facilitate (laughs) a kind of a... (laughs) A community spirit that wouldn't have existed otherwise. And I just, you know, I want to thank them. For that. <laughs> oh my God, that's great. How far away is the other house? It depends on whether it's by car or by foot because of a sort of a quirk of their location. It's about a half a mile away by car and only a quarter of a mile away by foot. So it depends on the weather. If it's a nice day and I feel like a walk, it's not very far. Otherwise, I take the car. And I've never met these people. They seem so nice. <laughs> They're very gracious. And we just, it's so nice to have such a smooth and simple relationship. We know exactly what's expected from one another. And I mentioned one time that I asked them, hey, is there a box that's addressed to us on your porch by any stretch? Because my son is expecting a birthday present from his grandmother, and he's been anticipating it for a few days. They wrote back, and they said, oh, happy birthday to your son. We'll let you know. 
for crying out loud. So I guess guys that one day we're going to meet, but it's going to be such a fun experience getting to know these people that we've had this entirely virtual relationship with. Again, mediated by the incompetence of the U.S. Postal Service. This is a great story. And, you know, the stories about the post office are pretty easy to come by, come to find out. And a lot of people have real horror stories about it. And every time, literally every time I say something like, well, we might think about doing away with this. Somebody says, you can't. It's in the Constitution. It never says you must have a post office. (laughs) It just says you can have a post office. And I think maybe in a day and age where UPS and FedEx and God help me, even DHL can get things to my house, maybe it's time to just throw our hands up and say, okay, we're done with this. And as you know very well, there is actually a Supreme Court case that held that the very short passage in the Constitution that simply authorizes the federal government to create a post office somehow mysteriously also handed to the federal government a monopoly. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And try processing that. One of the things that is so amazing about the experience that we've had is the utter implacable indifference of management, because both families have reported this problem to the local post office, and the complete indifference of management to this persistent problem that could presumably be solved by simply saying to whichever carrier is at issue here, hey, make more of an effort, or maybe whoever it is that's allocating the packages, Keep in mind that some of the streets in this jurisdiction have road and some have street and just keep those straight. But the utter lack of concern, the utter lack of interest in correcting this problem is kind of a thing to behold, I have to say. And to state the obvious, would certainly not happen if Disney were running the post That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And believe it or not, there was a brilliant movie centered on this theme, not postal, but nonetheless, it's called Brazil. Everybody should watch it at least a thousand times. It's that good. Just up the road from you is a town in Northern Virginia where a friend of mine lives. And this friend of mine will periodically take several months and go abroad. And he asks me to take care of his mail, which means that at his home post office, he fills out whatever forms are necessary. And his home post office every week or so is supposed to mail me a box. And in this box is all of this guy's mail that I'm then supposed to take care of. So the past couple times he's done this, he'll be gone. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the mail. Nothing shows up. Like a month later, I'll call up and say, hey, where's this mail? And a box will show up. And in this box is some of his mail. I don't know if it's all of his mail, but some of his mail, other people's mail. Also, (laughs) things like bills and checks to other people. It's as if they just grabbed a box and threw whatever was at hand in it and sent it to me. And so I call up whoever the manager is there. I say, hey, look, we got a serious problem here. You're sending me like legal documents that belong to other people and money and so forth. So I mailed the stuff back to them in their box. And another month later, I get another box again <laughs> with other people's stuff in it. It had no impact. You think if that was a private entity, they would be first off concerned at the money they're losing because they possibly lose customers. More than that, concerned that somebody's going to sue them because they're sending other people's mail out randomly. Nope, no, no change. So subsequently, what happened is this guy had to stop forwarding the mail because he could not trust the postal service to handle the mail correctly. Right. Well, they've got lots of other things they do. It's not like mail is the central <laughs> purpose the only- <laughs> of the post office. Well, while we're on the subject, I suppose we can give a quick legal shout out to people. Keep in mind that it's a federal crime to open or destroy mail addressed to another person. So if you get some junk mail for a previous tenant or occupant, 
you want to make sure that you don't throw that away or inadvertently open it because that is technically a federal crime. Now, the good news is, of course, that there are so many federal crimes that the odds of being investigated or prosecuted for that one are relatively low, unless, of course, they suspect you of some other crime that they can't actually prove and they simply need to coerce you into a guilty plea. <laughs> you knew I was going to get back to that eventually, right. didn't you? So after your experience with Amtrak versus Disney, you get back and your kids were in public school and now you've decided to move them into private. So again, you've got a dual experience of the public sector and the private sector. Yeah. So what happened was that our children had been going to a Montessori preschool and my son was about to start first grade and my daughter was about to start kindergarten. The preschool where they were going doesn't have a first grade. So we were going to have to move him and we figured we'd move them over both at the same time. Frankly, we've been going back and forth on whether to go to public school or private school. We decided we would try public school first because the local public school is literally a stone's throw from our house. It's about three or 400 feet away. I've talked to a bunch of parents in the neighborhood and gotten glowing reviews about it. And also a number of our kids' friends from the preschool where they were enrolled ended up matriculating into this elementary school. So they would have had some friends there and we just decided we would give it a try. When the COVID epidemic hit, there was a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen at the local public schools. And ultimately they decided to go to a full virtual experience. And we hung in there probably right up until then. We were even still gonna send them to public school when it was just gonna be two days a week. But when they went full virtual, we had talked to enough parents who had had negative experiences with online education, especially for young children during the spring, that we were pretty confident that it wouldn't work for us and for our kids. Now, fortunately, we had already met and discussed and expressed interest in a local private school. It's part of the Acton Academy chain of schools based in Austin, Texas. It was started by a couple of philanthropists named Jeff and Christina Sandifer. And it's an overtly free market, libertarian, Montessori-inspired school system, or I shouldn't say a system, but a chain of schools. And they have a couple of campuses here where I live, and we were very fortunate. We called up, we found out they still had a couple of spots. We did a few interviews, and I think really because we had already expressed strong interest in the school, we were able to get our kids in there. They have been having an absolutely wonderful experience. It's four and a half days a week in person. The kids wear masks unless they're outside at recess. I think they're still supposed to wear a mask then, but they relax it a little bit. It's been wonderful seeing them being able to go back and socialize and have friends and interact and to essentially get away from the cabin fever that set in for so many of us during the spring while we were cooped up. By contrast, my wife and I have both talked to numerous friends and acquaintances whose kids are still enrolled in the local public schools and they are tearing their hair out. There's no consistency. The things that they try don't work. There's endless meetings that never result in anything. The schools are relatively unresponsive. I don't know a single parent with young children who's having a positive experience. That doesn't mean there aren't any. It just happens that I don't know any. And more than one parent who we're close to has said to us that they really regret their decision to try to hang tough and stay in the public schools. And they're looking for the first opportunity to get out. Now, these are anecdotal experiences. I get that. I'm not saying that no one's having a good experience in public school. And I'm not saying that everybody's having a good experience in private school, but we feel so grateful that we were able to get our kids into a school where they're thriving and where we know that the school is absolutely committed to doing the most that they can for the kids within the bounds of what's reasonable in terms of safety. And they are doing that. And they're really, really smart and caring in the way they're going about it. And I can't say that for every school in our region. This is, I think, by any estimation, a tough time to be in the education business. Right. 
I generally cut people a lot of slack when external events are driving the narrative, right? And that's clearly what's happening now. But you kind of know what the narrative is going to be the minute you see the new reality. When COVID started percolating through our lives, I said, oh, geez, schools are going to be a disaster. Because of course they're going to be. It's not like these people are nimble and light on their feet and taking care of problems. No, you get that with private schools. And private schools, unfortunately, are very expensive. So it prices a lot of very nice, very thoughtful people right out of the market. And that's a reality that we all have to work with, too. And to that, you know, in a lot of cases, not all, but many, I say shame on you to the public schools that you would drive it to this point. That's the best most people are ever going to be able to do. You think you would take that a little more seriously than you do. You would go out of your way to be very decent every moment you could. And that's generally not how it goes. They're the only game in town, and you're going to take it and you're going to like it, citizen. The argument that you're going to get is that the reason the quality is poor is because we don't pay teachers enough, except that the causality in the private sector works the other direction. You first deliver quality, and then in response, you get rewarded with profit. Well, and let's be real here. Teachers in most private schools make less, not more than their public school counterparts. And if that's true, then the assertion cannot be. I agree with all of this. And if I had to really distill it down to its essence, here's the takeaway from our recent personal experience. The private school where our kids are now enrolled is unmistakably in the business of educating children. That is the business that they are in. By contrast, our local public schools are rather obviously in the business primarily of employing public school teachers. That is their primary business. Now, to the extent some children also get educated along the way, that's all well and good. But that's not primarily the business that the public schools are in. They are in the employing educators business. And that may seem like a bit of a cliche, but it's not. It matters tremendously where the rubber hits the road. And the difference in those missions, the difference in those goals is unmistakable when you are a parent on the receiving end of those two different experiences. And I'm not ruling out the possibility that our kids would ever return to the public school, but I think the experience just that we've had in the last couple of months makes it orders of magnitude less likely that we would ever turn to the public schools, whatever sacrifices may be necessary for us as a family with two parents both working in public policy, which it has been a bit of a stretch, but it has not been remotely impossible. And if this continues, if we continue to feel that the experience that our kids are getting is this much better, it is rather difficult to imagine going back to public schools ever. I've got two things to add here. I would agree with you on the primary role that the schools play. The next one down on the list, though, isn't education. It's child care. Right. It's providing a safe place for junior to be for seven, eight hours a day. Only after you get past those first two do you get to education. And there might be another one or two in there before you do. Having said all that, and I know the gravity of what I've just said, Ant and I have traveled the country for the last five years visiting with high school teachers. And the ones we visit are stellar. They are really good. Unbelievable. But of course they are. They went out of their way to find us and invite us down and do all the things that great teachers do, right? And when we meet their students, we meet well-behaved students who know what they're talking about and address us with respect, but don't hold back on their opinions. It's really something. So they proved to me that it can be done. The vast majority of them proved to me that many people are not interested. 
And I think that's where I land on this sort of thing. I don't see any other rational place where I could land. And this goes back to the point of serendipity. There are really good teachers in the public school system, but there's nothing about the system that would necessarily cause them to be there. When I meet them, I generally like to compliment them, right? Because nobody gets enough compliments in this life. And I say, look, if I had met a teacher like you in my town, my kids might have gone to school. Right. We homeschooled ours because I just couldn't fathom letting them go to a public school. And as a political science professor, trust me, I didn't make enough to send them to private school. And that's kind of where it was. The teachers that we do see, they are literal unicorn type events. Yeah, we do see them and we know where they all live now and this sort of thing. But it took us five years to find this many. And even now, in the midst of COVID, we're still doing these lectures. We're doing them online. And it's the same experience. Just the other day, I was in front of a public school classroom. The kids were all remote. The teacher was there. But the kids were heavily engaged, asking really top-notch questions. This is a public school. My father was a second career public school teacher. He was a NASA engineer. He graduated from the University of Maine in the mid-1960s. He went to work on the Gemini program and helped put a man on the moon. He worked for the astronauts on Apollo, worked in the aerospace industry. And when the Cold War ended, he realized that there was going to be a contraction and he really wanted to go and teach. So he enrolled in a special one-year program that they have at Harvard that will give you a master's degree in education and certification to teach school in Massachusetts. And he taught public high school physics and math for 10 years. And he said, he told me one time, he said, the best thing that could possibly happen to his school would be if somebody opened a charter school across right. the street because it would exert pressure on the school he was teaching at to be more flexible, to give teachers more leeway, more discretion over what they teach, because those are the things that happen in a charter school. And if you continue forcing your teachers to march and lock step and engage in this drudgery of filling out forms and answering to supervisors and teaching to the test, they're going to go across the street to the charter school where they will be happier. I know we're beating this school choice drum, subtweeting it, so to speak, but it's true. I think that there are so many incredibly talented and committed and capable public school teachers, and to a high degree of certainty, many of them would be so much happier in an environment. doesn't matter whether it's a private school, charter school, or some other environment where they have more control over their curriculum, more discretion over what they teach and how they teach it. And if you don't think that they are complaining behind closed doors and sometimes not even closed doors about those attributes of the public school system, then you're talking to a different set right. of teachers than I suspect all we must have been talking to. Unless there be any doubt, the teachers we meet, the good ones, the ones that do a respectable job, they tell us all the problems that they face all the time. Yeah. We hear it straight from their mouths and they would be happier if they had an option to go across the street to the new charter school. But a lot of jurisdictions now are doing their level best to limit the number of charters that are even granted because yep. they have proven themselves to be a worthy opponent in the marketplace. Nobody hates a worthy opponent as much as a government school. That's right. And I wonder if those of us who support greater choice in education and what we now currently call public education, I wonder if we might look back on COVID one day and say, you know what, as bad as it was while it was going on, it was the best thing that ever happened to public education because it gave a real kick in the seat of the pants to the education establishment. To some extent, it pulled down the mask and revealed the public education establishment for what it really was. And it forced parents to ask a very fundamental question, which is, is this really the best that can be done for my child? And many of us have concluded the answer is absolutely no. I'm going to go out here and take the initiative 
to find an educational experience for my kids that is better than what's on yeah. offer at my very expensive public school. So I don't know. It's hard to say whether or not what's going to happen in the future, but this has been a real wake-up call for a lot of people. And maybe this will be a net positive thing, not obviously across the board, but specifically for education. And I suspect it will be quite transformative in the long term and probably in the short term too. We're all working from the same playbook all of a sudden, right? Everybody realized that it really was kind of like the Wizard of Oz there. He's really not that powerful at all. Ant and I have been talking with some seriousness about how we can get into this market. And if we're doing that, other people like us are doing that too. Across this country, when hundreds of thousands of committed, smart people ask the same question, some of them are going to come up with a very correct answer. You know, something that stuck with me from when I used to do school choice work at the Institute for Justice, I had to learn a lot about education policy, and I'd be interested to see if this jives with your understanding as well. Of the many, many things that we were told were necessary for high-quality education, small class size, more money, facilities, whatever, it seems that there actually was one thing that is empirically verifiable as improving a student's educational performance. And it's none of the things that I just mentioned. It is the quality of the classroom instruction. It's the quality of that teacher standing up in front of those students and teaching. And there are, as with anything, a finite number of truly outstanding teachers in the world. And anything, in my view, anything that delivers that educational experience to a larger number of students that takes a student who otherwise would have had a mediocre or poor teacher standing up in front of that class and exposes them to a truly gifted teacher is almost certain to be transformative. Yeah, I think that's right. And Anthony frequently talks about the teachers we've met. And why don't you give your stock speech? I've heard it a dozen times and it's right every time. There are several that come to mind, but we encounter on a regular basis high school teachers who are seriously university quality. They would stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with any of my colleagues in a university classroom, and they're delivering. Not only are they excellent in terms of their talent of teaching, but they're delivering high-quality stuff such that the students that we see, and we see juniors and seniors typically, junior and senior high school, these students are operating at a second-year college level in the subjects that they're learning. This is simply due to these particular teachers. And we see this, money doesn't matter because we've seen this phenomenon in some of the richest high schools in the country. And we have been to quite literally the second poorest county in the entire country and see the same quality there. It's very much a function of the person and apparently not at all a function of how much we're spending. It's actually astonishing once you start moving in these circles and you could put this together yourself. Once you see it, you'll never unsee it. It's not the money. It's the person. And you can't really make a bureaucracy around that thought or around that realization. That's not what bureaucracies do. By definition, most of the public schools are going to flop. Some are going to do really well. But the one thing I've noticed, I will stipulate that everything Anthony said is at least true. I don't think he captures the degree to which it's true. But when you go to these places and you see these teachers really knocking it out, when you talk to them, we almost always bring them out for lunch or go out to dinner with them, something like this. You learn very quickly that high quality classroom instruction is a subversive act. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's actually a subversive act. These people are putting themselves in harm's way because they're different.
They are beloved by their students. Trust me, those are the ones that marginal bureaucrats are going to get rid of first. But it does my heart some good that even that sort of threat doesn't stop them. They're still willing to just go pound it out. And it's such a respectable thing. It's probably the most surprising thing I have encountered in the 150 or so high schools we've been to. Clark, any last words of wisdom for us and the people who listen out there? I think I would say this. I hope everybody keeps in mind that this too shall pass. You may be outraged about things that you're seeing here in Washington. We probably are going to get a new Supreme Court justice that is going to, for the first time in at least a couple of generations, discernibly tilt the ideological composition of the court. And we're going to have an election that's going to probably be a little scary. Maybe not, hopefully not, but it might be. But I feel a sense of confidence that we're going to make it through all of this. I think there's a really good chance that the court will come back to something closer to ideological equilibrium at some point. I know it's very frustrating for a lot of people to see what seems to be happening and that particular thing is getting bulldozed through. I don't think it's likely that that's going to last for a very long time. And so it's a very difficult time for the country between COVID and the machinations of our political leaders and this very fraught election. But I hope everybody can take an even strain and recognize that we have a lot of very powerful institutions in history that are resilient. And we may be at each other's throats right now, but I think we're still fundamentally good people in a good country. It's not my nature to sort of try to end on a super optimistic note, but things are actually a lot better than they look right now. And I hope people can keep that in mind. Yeah, I think ultimately they would have to be better than they look because they don't look so great. I agree with you. I think the best days for the United States are always in the future. I'm kind of a Reaganite in this way. It's great that I'm here now, but boy, it's going to be so much better when I'm not here anymore. And that's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Be sure to join us next week when maybe we'll know who the president is. But until then, you can follow us on Twitter. The handles are in the show notes. You can join our Words and Numbers backstage Facebook group. And if you really have to, you can send email to Anthony, not to me. Email um, Words and Numbers podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And it's nice. That's words and Numbers podcast at gmail.com. Just shut up for crying out loud. Um, words and numbers words podcast at gmail.com. I'm sorry. Did you have something to say, James? I did. <laughs> See, the, you behave this way because you've convinced yourself <laughs> that I won't punch you. And you're wrong. You are just wrong. <laughs> J- <laughs> say goodbye to nice people, James. And trust me, I sense no irony in what I'm about to say. And for crying out loud, people, be nice to each other. It's almost over. Be nice to each other. See you later, Ant. See you next week, James.